0: Today is the feast of the blessed Bartolo Longo. If you haven't heard of him before, he's very important for Marian devotion. He was a satanic priest, a follower of of the Dark Prince. These were the times when there was uh, a lot of um, ill will towards the Holy Father and towards the Church during the time of the unification of Italy and the confiscation of the Papal States. And he was a student at the University of Naples, which frequently had uh, demonstrations against the church, and he fell in with this and ended up uh, getting into the occult arts and eventually becoming a priest of, of Satanism. Uh, he was also an attorney, <laughs> and um, he was uh, in the service of, um, of a wealthy heiress uh, at the f- uh, foothills of, um, of um, what's, what's the volcano called in Naples? Uh, Vesuvius, very good. And uh, right there where Pompeii is, the city that had been entirely destroyed by the um, volcanic eruption. And um, he eventually converted through Our Lady and through the Most Holy Rosary in particular. Uh, most of the exorcists of the church confirm that one of the most powerful weapons we have in our arsenal against evil and wickedness is the Most Holy Rosary, and those who pray the rosary faithfully uh, can never be subject uh, to the the evil one. Um, Through his services to the Duchess, he obtained a piece of land, a painting, and a tiny little chapel, which today stands as the massive uh, papal basilica, of Our Lady of Pompeii, probably the most well known image of Our Lady giving the, the rosary to St. Dominic and to St. Catherine of Siena. You've all seen it. It's housed in that basilica. It's one of the principal places of pilgrimage in Italy today. And Bartolo Longo, converted by Our Lady to uh, her son Jesus Christ, is on his way to canonization. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my works too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I may love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. St. Maximilian Mary Colby of the Militia of the Immaculata, he writes that we cannot approach the mystery of Mary without the illumination of her spouse, the Holy Spirit, who alone scrutinizes the deep things of God. It is because Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit that she is the mother of Christ, that she is the mother of divine grace, and that she is the mother of all believers, and therefore the mother of the church, the whole Christ, head and members. As Carol Hausländer put it in her book, The Read of God, Our Lady is, first of all, the Spirit's Bride. And after that, the Life-Bearer, for he is the Vivifier. Last night we considered devotion to Our Lady in relation to the pr- most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose chalice she is, in material and in shape, because she is the Domus Aurea, the house of gold, and she is the Rosa Mystica, the lily, the fleur-de-lis. She is a vessel. Three times she is called a vessel in the litany. She is the vas honorabile, the vessel most honorable, the vas spirituale, the vessel most spiritual, and the vas Insigne devotionis, the vessel of all devotion. She is the treasured outcome of our quest for the Holy Grail. Now this morning I'd like to begin in earnest by delving into the first of the four Marian dogmas of the church. The earliest of the dogmatic truths that was proclaimed by Holy Holy Church concerning the Blessed Mother is that also which is most explicitly declared in the revelation of scripture itself, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The fathers of the church and all the sacred writers are particularly careful to point out that she is Mary ever-Virgin. And she is the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, prophecy in the book of the prophet Isaiah. She is the Virgin who is with child, Isaiah 7.14. All the churches that have apostolic origin have always proclaimed the perpetual virginity of Mary without any controversy between them on this dogmatic point from the very start of Christendom. Even some of the more heretical sects, such as the Nestorians. Immediately after the Gospels were written, even before they were canonized by the Church, the first fathers of the Church stressed Mary's perpetual virginity in a particular way as a keystone of Catholic theology. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred in the year 116, immediately after the apostolic age, writes in his letter to the church at Ephesus that Mary's virginity, along with Jesus' birth and death, is one of the three key mysteries calling to be proclaimed. And therefore, is an essential part of the kerygma or the proclamation of the gospel. Precisely because Mary's virginity is the convalidation of Christ being the son of none but God. So St. Ignatius of Antioch says that this must be proclaimed as one of the key dogmas of the faith. And so our litany calls her Virgo Predicanda, which is the virgin who must be preached, Virgo Predicanda. The dogma of Mary's perpetual virginity never became a question of controversy, even in the age of the Protestant Reformation but only afterwards, as a so-called development of doctrine, stemming from the Protestants' separation from their principle of unity, Rome, and from the principle of authority, St. Peter. But even so, the early Protestants, the, the Reformers, did not ever question the virgin birth, but only later the perpetual virginity of Mary, in other words, after the birth of Christ. Nevertheless, it was for us Catholics a spectacle of particular sadness to witness an important bishop of our times, appointed by the current pope, going on record in an interview with a Catholic publication, Observador, on December 23rd last year, in effect denying or at the very least, diminishing this perpetually held belief of the church in the perpetual virginity of Mary. This bishop told Observador, we should never refer to the physical virginity of Mary. We cannot assume, he explained, that the scripture tells us anything about the intactness of her hymen. The word virginity only refers to her total devotion to God. This occurred in a Christmas interview with an important Catholic newspaper given together with the influential theologian, Father Anselmo Borges, who went even further in this heretical position, declaring that Christ was conceived by Mary and Joseph as any other human person. Virginity is only associated with Mary as a metaphor, to prove that Jesus was a very special person. And this took place in the country of Fatima. What a shame! So in his Christmas sermon, a few days later, this very bishop, the Bishop of Porto in Portugal, was pressured into adding a paragraph at the end in which he clarified, there would be no Christmas without the Virgin Mary. She who, in accordance with the faith of the Church, which is also my faith, is proclaimed virgin before, during, and after birth, in an express manner since the Synod of Milan in the year 390, or Mater Intacta, as we stay in the litany. I could not find this title in, in any litany. Nevertheless, the embarrassed bishop backtracked from his interview position and did not persist obstinately in his heresy. So he's not a formal heretic. He remains the Bishop of Portugal's largest diocese today. Now I mention all of this not to be needlessly controversial, but to indicate how important it is for us every time to reassert and to reassert during this retreat our Catholic faith in all four Marian dogmas of the Church, And never to assume that dogmatic facts about Our Lady, however venerable, lie beyond the wiles of the devil. Because we live in an age in which virginity itself is so very much misunderstood and ridiculed even. So let us venerate in the first place the Mother of God as Mary ever virgin. It's more relevant than ever. We must remain steadfast in this cause of our veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She is the Virgo Veneranda, the virgin who is to be venerated on account of her virginity. Now, the sacred scripture had no need to assert the virginity of Mary as a metaphor because it caused considerable controversy right away. Even St. Joseph himself had to wrestle with the consequence of putting away his betrothed. For she had been found with child before the couple had come together in the consummation of their betrothal. In other words, before the marriage was concluded. And the penalty for adultery or fornication was death by stoning. There was no need for the gospel to insist on her virginity other than the fact that it was simply true. Not only on that point, but the Gospel's assertion also courts controversy with St. John's vision at Patmos of the Virgin in the heavens who is with child, since it presents her in labor, something a perpetual virgin should never experience. But unfortunately, unbelievers are more apt to see metaphor in the factual narratives of the Gospel than they are in the apocalyptic literature of the book of Revelation, where it is more germane to the genre. Labor in childbirth for the woman is a consequence of original sin. Just as labor or travail for the man in earning his bread by the sweat of his brow is a consequence of original sin. Adam and Eve before the fall enjoyed the fruits of creation effortlessly since there was as yet no enmity between man and his creator, the consequence, and, no, and, and the consequence, no enmity between the creature and the rest of creation. Similarly, the sign of their married chastity would have been childbirth without labor or without the rupture of virginity. After the redeeming act of our salvation, in Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, sacramental marriages are chaste once more, or by the grace of the sacrament, ought to be chaste, even if the sign of that chastity, intact virginity, is no longer recorded to our human parents as it was to our first parents. And that is why the consecrated life remains such a potent sign For chastity in the world. Their virginity buttresses and supports the chastity of holy matrimony since in foregoing matrimony they do retain the eschatological sign of virginity. So celibacy and marriage are not opposites or antonyms except in so much as they are the opposite sides of the same coin bolstering each other and strengthening each other. In fact, like the stones of an arch, the more they push on each other, the more weighty the pressure they, they support one another with, the stronger it is for both of them. The stronger consecrated life is in the world, the stronger married life will be in the world. The stronger married life in the world is, the stronger consecrated life. It's no surprise uh, that in the generation in which we've lost 90% of our consecrated religious... In a generation, we've lost 90% of our consecrated religious Uh, matrimonial fidelity has plummeted too. It's so important, perhaps even essential, that we insist on virginity for the consecrated life, and even for holy orders, not mere mechanical continence. Because if the metaphor ever held, it holds here. The call to repentance of our own sign in the flesh, our virginity. And in this sense, we can say of Mary that she is the Virgo Virginum, the virgin of virgins. She is the Virgo Fidelis, the faithful virgin. That's why the Blessed Mother is a sign for the vocations both of marriage and of religious life when she becomes a mother while remaining yet a virgin, And in this, she is the new Eve, the mother not only of the living, but of the reborn. They're reborn of her as much as they are reborn of the spirit in their rebirth. She serves as the icon and the exemplar of all that God intended before the fall and which he will achieve in us after the eschaton. She is the exemplar. Of what awaits. She is the woman who original sin did not touch. And so the infant Christ passed through her womb as the risen Lord entered the upper room, passing through locked doors. Those were locked for fear of the Jews and announcing, Peace be with you. Because Mary is the enclosed garden, she is the sealed fountain. So much for virginity in birth. Virginity after birth has proved more controversial, especially in these last five Protestant centuries, because they grapple so much with their independent interpretation of Scripture. They had intended to do away with the Pope, but all they succeeded in doing was to make each man his own Pope. And so they accept to scripture, but they reject tradition, which means they do accept tradition, but only insofar as it brings them the sacred scriptures, because it was the church which wrote the scriptures and canonized the scriptures. So they accepted that far. But then when it comes to the interpretation of the same scripture, which the church canonically defined, they reject the interpretation. So therefore, texts such as those referring to the brethren of the Lord, who remonstrate with him when he is teaching, who interrupt him in his teaching, distract them from the true message of what Christ is teaching in that scene. Because instead of seeing the point, they distract it by the footnote, and they fail to see the forest for the trees. Christ's brethren is a term employed by the evangelists to emphasize the truism in this teaching that true kinship in Christ is not something biologically based or accidental, but is above all faith-based. Based Based not on any bonds of subjective uh, affectivity, but based on the objective reality of faith. So when Christ says, Blessed is she who believed, This is not the opposite of the one who said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that suckled you. Rather, it draws attention to the greatness of the blessed mother in adhering to the word which was fulfilled in her. When we look at Semitic family relationships, we see that only elder brethren in a clan might remonstrate with a junior or interrupt his teaching. So for these, by the Protestant interpretation, to be the biological brethren of Christ, they would have to have preceded him in birth, which the gospel explicitly refutes in calling Christ Mary's firstborn. And this is a legal appellation which uh, establishes succession and position in the family structure. It does not imply, as it does perhaps to our postmodern ear, that if there was a firstborn, there were laterborns. It's a legal term. In any event, this passage of Scripture could not be appealed to in support of it because later borns lacked the legal capacity to intervene in the affairs of the firstborn. The evangelists had no need to insist on Mary's virginity, except that this was also the expectation of sacred revelation as we come to understand it in the fullness of truth into which the Holy Spirit has led the Church. But it was not necessarily the expectation of the prevailing interpretation of it at the time. I'd like to quote here from Cardinal John Henry Newman. Next to the great question which occupied their minds, namely, when the Christ was to come, stood the question... Who would be his mother? It had been told them from the first, not that he should come from heaven, but that he should be born of a woman. Who then was to be that woman, significantly pointed out to the fallen race of Adam? At the end of many centuries, it was further revealed to the Jews that their great Messiah or Christ, the seed of the woman, would be born of their race, and of one particular tribe of the twelve tribes into which that race was divided. And from that time, every woman of that tribe hoped to have the great privilege of herself being the mother of the Messiah, the Christ, for it stood to reason. Since he was so great, the mother must also be great and good and blessed too. And so it was, among other reasons why the Jews thought so highly of the state of marriage. Because not knowing the mystery of the miraculous conception of the Christ when he was actually to come, they thought that their marriage rite was the ordinance necessary for his coming. And so it was, if Mary had been as the other woman of her tribe, she would have longed for marriage as opening on her the prospect of being the mother of the great king, but she was too humble for this, and too pure for such thoughts. She had been inspired to choose the better way of serving God, which had not been made known to the Jews, yet the state of virginity. She preferred to be his spouse than to being his mother. And so when the archangel Gabriel announced to her her high destiny, she shrank from it until she was assured that it would not oblige her to revoke her purpose of a virgin life devoted to God. And thus it was that she became the mother of the Christ, not in that way which pious women for so many ages had expected him, but declining the grace of such maternity, she gained it by means of a higher grace. I've chosen to conclude with this uh, Lengthy excerpt of the soon-to-be-canonized Cardinal Newman on the virginity of Mary because it will lead us uh, this afternoon very carefully, if surprisingly, into our later consideration of the divine maternity of Mary. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions in our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin." Amen.